Father God, thank you. We do look forward to that day where everyone will bow. Lord, we do long to see you face to face. And Lord, we are in this current state where we only get glimmers of how great you are in the pages of Scripture, but we know that you will fulfill everything that you have spoken and that the apostles have written down. We look for a day where there is no more tears and no more sin and all of those things will be done away with. But until then, Lord, may we continue to strive to grow in our love for you, to live holy lives, and to win people to Christ. Be with us this morning as we look into your word, that you will work in our hearts, draw to mind the things that we need to learn, Lord, conform us to the man and woman that you want us to be. Lord, give us attentive ears and soft hearts as we look into your word. In your son's precious name, amen. If you have your Bibles, please open it to Ecclesiastes chapter 7. Ecclesiastes chapter 7 is going to be the text for us this morning. We're going to look at verse 15 until the end of the chapter. Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verse 15 to the end. I'd like to start by reading the Word of God. Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verse 15. I've seen everything during my lifetime of futility. There is a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness, and there is a wicked man who prolongs his life in his wickedness. Do not be excessively righteous. Do not be overly wise. Why should you ruin yourself? Do not be excessively wicked, and do not be a fool. Why should you die before your time? It is good that you grasp one thing and also not let go of the other. For the one who fears God comes forth with both of them. Wisdom strengthens a wise man more than ten rulers who are in a city. Indeed, there is not a righteous man on earth who continually does good and who never sins. Also, do not take seriously all words which are spoken so that you will not hear your servant cursing you. For you have For you also have realized that you likewise have many times cursed others. I tested all this with wisdom, and I said, I will be wise, but it was far from me. What has been is remote and exceedingly mysterious. Who can discover it? I directed my mind to know, to investigate, and to seek wisdom and an explanation, and to know the evil of, of, of the note of evil of folly and the foolishness of madness, and I discover more bitter than death the woman whose heart is snares and nets, whose hands are chains. One who is pleasing to God will escape from her, but the sinner will be captured by her. Behold, I have discovered this as the preacher, adding one thing to another to find an explanation which I am still seeking but have not found. I have found one man among a thousand, but I have not found a woman in all these things. Behold, I have found 
only this, that God made men upright, but they have sought out many devices. I've spoken on this before and how our culture tends to try to find a reason for evil. The world is perplexed and is always intrigued and wants to study it. Many throughout history have spent thousands and thousands of dollars and minutes upon minutes to try to understand the, the, the meaning of evil, why people do things. We have now gone to a state in our society where we can figure out patterns in people's lives and backgrounds and things that may look like a person that will do evil, but the one thing that people cannot find and be able to discern and be able to make a scientific method on is why do people do bad things? Why do we do evil things? And we know as we look around us all over the world that really man is the center of all the problems. I found this song that I thought was helpful. I'm not going to sing it, but I'd like to read some of the lyrics. It's by this guy named Derek Webb, and he, I think he is a Christian, or he professes to be a Christian. He had this song called, Everyone is Crooked Deep Down. And he writes this, in this little song. My life looks good. I do confess. You can ask anyone. Just don't ask my real, my real good friends, because they will lie to you, or worse they will tell the truth. Because there are things you will not believe that travel into my mind. I swear I try to capture them, but always set them free. It seems bad things comfort me. Everyone is crooked deep down. I think that really captures really well what Solomon's trying to do here. He's trying to understand evil. Solomon understands that the broken world that we inhabit right now is ran by broken people. God allows Solomon to have a unique ability to discern and to know things about the world. He had this giftedness that allowed him to be an expert in life. And Solomon, however, used this gift for his own pleasure. He used his entire life with all of the resources and talents that God has given him to indulge into sin. Yes, there was a season in Solomon's life where things were going really well. He brought Jerusalem and Israel to its highest peak in terms of prominence and resources. There was no one until Christ was turned that can top Solomon. Solomon is the wisest man that man has to offer. In terms of giftedness, he is a champion of wisdom. And that's just a quick reminder that sometimes the Lord can gift you certain abilities and talents and resources, and you can even acknowledge the fact that they're from the Lord. But you can use those things to sin against the Lord. And that's exactly what happens to Solomon. Solomon spent his whole life just journeying from one sin to another, buying one thing from another. He has acquired everything that there is in life. And in our worldly sense, you think that he's a very successful person. But at the end of all things, he concludes that everything is meaningless. Everything is useless without God. And the most important thing that you need to know is that you need to fear the Lord. Ecclesiastes is a sermon that's been written down in a lot of ways by Ecclesiastes. He's just trying to teach his son and future kings that you need to fear the Lord. Above all else, forget all the, the exploits and all the things that you've achieved in this life. The most important thing that you need is to fear the Lord. 
Because without the Lord, there is no truth and there is no meaning. And that means that there is an interwoven connectivity between God, truth, and meaning. You cannot have meaning and purpose in life without God. And Solomon is trying to impress that upon everyone that would listen to his words. Solomon, the sermon, he's just trying to show us that life is meaningless without the Lord. And particularly in this text that we're going to look at this morning, he's going to dive deep into the depravity of man. He's going to use the gifts and the resources that the Lord has given him, and he's going to try to dwell and dive into sin. And we're going to go on this little journey with him, and, he's going to, and we're going to see just how wicked we are in our own hearts. So Solomon's going to use God's gift here of wisdom and discernment and knowledge and acquire it, and all things he's acquired, but he's going to use it particularly into sin. And, he's, and we're going to see his findings here. So this quest that Solomon's on is to solve the riddle of man's depravity that's in their own heart. Look at verse 15. I have seen everything during my lifetime of futility. There is a righteous man who, practice, who perishes in righteousness, and there is a wicked man who prolongs his life in his wickedness. And this is fascinating because it just shows us that not everything in life makes sense. Sometimes the wicked seem to live longer than those that are righteous. Righteous people can sometimes die sooner. And Solomon looks all around his life and he sees a person's mortality has nothing to do with how long he, or what he does or how long he lives. Which kind of contradicts a little bit by what Solomon has wrote early on when he wrote Proverbs. Right, Proverbs, especially in the beginning, says that if you want to live a long life, you want to have a prosperous life, the thing that you need to do is to be obedient to the Lord. You need to fear the Lord and live a righteous life, live a life that's born, and you'll live long. And he makes this contrast, too, that if you want to end your life quickly, live in sin. And now he seems to be at this point where he realizes, no, that's not always the case. In a lot of ways, Proverbs is the general realities of life. Generally speaking, if you live a holy and righteous life, you'll live a long life. And at the same time, if you live a wicked life, your life is going to be cut short. But there are always exceptions. There are always exceptions to that rule. And that's what Ecclesiastes is. It's the exception to the norms of life. This world operates by certain rules. It operates by certain standards. But sometimes in a fallen world, nothing makes sense. Nothing always goes according to plan. Life is not determined by the condition of the person. Right, we know Adam, he's the, one that, he's the reason why we're all wearing clothes. He's the reason why all of us in this sinful state, he's lived for hundreds of years. We know that Moses, in the beginning of his life, he was saved and then rescued, and, but yet he was known as this angry person that likes to fight people and kills people and then tries to escape and run away from it. He lived for 120 years. We know our Lord, in contrast, only lived 33 years around 33 years. I'm 33 years old. I'm, conf- I'm opening it. Yeah, yeah, I look older or younger, whatever. But yes, I'm 33 years old right now. And Jesus has lived just as long as I have lived on this earth. And some of you, without you know, looking at anyone in particular, are older than 33 years old. You outlasted our Savior on this planet. And we all know that you and I are wretched and wicked people. And yet, the, re- the wretched people sometimes live longer than the righteous. And this is what Solomon is trying to get at. Sometimes the world just doesn't make sense. Many of, many of us are just perplexed and surprised by the fact that there are wicked people that somehow live long. They seem to live prosperous in this world, and that is true. And Solomon is trying to tell you that that is a reality. Sometimes the wicked people are going to have so much fun and so much 
pleasure in this life, and they might live longer than you, and they might enjoy this life. And while the righteous are always going to be troubled and live a life that is not filled with, in the worldly sense, satisfaction. Look at verse 16. Do not be excessively righteous, and do not be overly wise. Why should you ruin yourself? Do not be excessively wicked, uh, and do not be a fool. Why should you die before your time? Now, if you read this on the surface, you think, well, Solomon's telling me to live a unrighteous life. I could do that. I could, I, this is going to be my life first. I'm going to live just with not too much wickedness and not too much righteousness. So somewhere in between, that's good. You know, like Goldilocks theology right here. But you know, here's, there are times when I, I do believe that the English Bible and all of our English Bibles are really good at explaining to us, us the meaning of the text. But there are times where if you study the original, it helps you. And I think this is one of those verses where the original language helps us and gives us understanding what it, what it really means. In the Hebrew, uh, it's this idea of, of it's a reflexive. The, I mean, the main verb is done upon the subject. So here is, if you were to retranslate this verse in verse 16, it's like, do not be overly self-righteous and do not be overly self-wise. Do not make yourself righteous. That's the idea here. Don't think by, that abiding by certain self-righteous standards that you can even add a single second into your life. Look, our church had a history of legalism. This church... Had oh you need to obey God's law and here are some extra laws they used to have these four D's that they held on to you can't dance you can't drink you have to dress a certain way and you cannot have drums and clearly we've repented from that right we have these drum sets here and people thought that that's how what godliness is all about that if you do all these things you have all of these things then that is what makes you right with God and let's not just for a second let's forget about the past let's think about the present. In our COVID context, there are those who think of themselves as righteous because they hold to one view or the other. Right? Let's just say, for example, half of the, here, the people here are the vaccinated and the other people are not vaccinated. I'm not, I don't know who your vaccination is. Don't show me your vaccination cards. But just understand that sometimes the people that are vaccinated look up down upon those that are unvaccinated and vice versa. People that are vaxxed or, wear, or, or is okay with wearing masks will say, you need to love your neighbor, okay? You need to love them, and you need to put on your mask, you need to wear, you get the vaccinations, you submit to the government, and you look down upon those that choose to do the opposite. And there are those that are unmasked, and you look at those that are vaccinated and wearing masks, you think, you have no trust in the Lord. Don't you know that God is completely sovereign? Why would you get vaccinated? Isn't God in control of your life? Now, I'm not saying, I'm not here to settle this score. I'm not saying he'll fight this thing out. I'm just saying that what goes on in your heart reveals how self-righteous you really are. What ends up happening is that we boast about our own pursuits and our own responses to whatever crisis to make other people look inferior. You may think that by doing this, that you're somehow pleasing to the Lord, and that somehow the Lord's going to keep you and, live, and allow you to live longer. You know, we live in a day and age where I remember reading the news recently where there was an unvaccinated person. He's just known to be unvaccinated. He died from COVID. And people just laughed at him. And then this, this article said, is it okay to laugh at those that died? And they said, yes, in this situation, we should totally make fun of those that are unvaccinated that died from COVID because it's a just thing to do. And on the flip side, there are those that are in hospitals because they are vaccinated. They say, ha see, what's the point of getting the vaccination? You shouldn't even need to do it to begin with. Just get rid of all the mandates. And in both cases, whatever you stand in, whatever uh, position you hold, at the heart of it is the self-righteousness. You think, I can do this and other people can't, and therefore I'm better than you. 
It's a self-elevation. The self-righteousness is always some sort of external performance. It pretends to be something that you're not. You pretend to be righteous, but in your heart of hearts, you're actually not that righteous. It shows other people. It makes people feel bad just because you're able to do something that they can't. It's an elevation of your own ego. It's self-righteousness. And usually the self-righteous person, they actually do believe that if they do this one thing, then God is going to bless them in this life. That they're somehow going to live long because of their own self-righteousness. And Solomon's saying, no, that's not the case. Self-righteousness is self-centered and is often self-condemning. So again, I'm not here to resolve this COVID issue, but I am just going to ask you a question. Is how do you view those that are on the opposing side? All you vaccinated people, what do you think about those that say, hey, I don't want to get vaccinated? All those of you that are masked, I know most of you are masked, what what if there's like a handful of people that are not masked? What is your heart attitude? What's going on in your own heart? And Solomon is really saying the fact that you respond a certain way shows you that you are depraved. Solomon is saying that all of us lean towards self-righteousness. That's one extreme. The other extreme is not, uh, it's not holy. It's in fact, we actually lean to the other extreme, but we actually do more wickedness. We, we, we boast about our wickedness. Verse 17, And do not be excessively wicked. Do not be a fool. Why should you die before your time? Now, this seems like a contradiction. Like, didn't you just say in verse 15 that the wicked will live long? And it's like, what's going on here? Are you, are you, are you like being bipolar here, Solomon? No, I think he's just speaking of just the reality of life. Sometimes people are going to die because of the sin that they commit. They make one wrong decision. That's it. That's the end of their life. Countless people have entered into eternity because of just one small judgment. And Solomon wants his listeners to know that neither self-righteousness or open debauchery will make you live long in this life. A wicked person thinks sometimes they could abuse the love of God. They think, well, if God has forgiven me all these other times, he's merciful all these times, then, yeah, why can't I just indulge in this sin one more time? They abuse the mercy of God, and then in that one last mistake, they end up meeting the Lord in their sin. Your life is ultimately in God's hands. The things that goes on in your heart reveals that you, are, you and I are more self-righteous than we like to believe. And the only right response in all things is to fear the Lord. Verse 18, It is good that you grasp one thing and also not let go of the other, for the one who fears God comes forth with both of them. A wise person does not think in extremes. They understand certain principles. They know that certain verses apply in certain contexts. They don't think in these extremes. Only person who is wise can know not to be self-righteous and not to be self-indulgent in their sin. Wisdom guards you from being overly self-righteous and loving your sin. Verse 19, wisdom strengthens a wise man more than ten rulers who are in the city. And Solomon states this great protection that wisdom provides. And Solomon says that the true wisdom will protect you, it will strengthen you. It's greater than ten rulers in a city. And wisdom stems from a genuine fear of the Lord. Genuine fear of the Lord will give you this kind of wisdom. Verse 20, indeed, there is not a righteous man on earth who continually does good and who never sins. And again, if you are trying to do some Bible memorizing uh, thing with your kids or with your life, and you want to know the doctrine of the depravity man, this is a good verse to memorize because it summarizes all of us. 
right? We, we just can't stop sinning. There's no one that does the right thing. Solomon says the true wisdom will, get, will let you at least discern that, 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 with, that man is sinner, that all of us are sinners. It's this encompassing statement about all of humanity. There is no exception to that. The Bible is absolutely correct in this. Either it is correct or it's absolutely wrong. There's no in-between. And look, you believe in the depravity of man. Even it's, it's, and it amuses me sometimes when our culture says, no, man is good, and they create all these technologies that protect themselves from the depravity of man, right? Like, look at your smartphone. You go ahead. You can take out your smartphone. Some of you are already on social media. You need to repent of that. This is a worship time. But some of you, you know, when you open your phone, what's the first thing that shows up? You see your face. You see, you know, the time. But it has a thing, like, it needs to know your password, right? It needs to know that you are that right person, why? Because you believe in the depravity of man. Even the creator, the Apple products or whatever, they believe in the depravity of man. I was at Costco yesterday with my family, and there are three checkpoints before we could buy a hot dog and things inside. They, before you walk in, they make you show your ID, and they, they look at you. I don't know how they could verify, because we all have our mask on, but whatever. And you, get, you go in with your membership, and then you purchase, you get your items, and you want to go to the cashier and purchase. And what happens? They ask you to check your ID again to make sure that that's you and that you didn't take someone else's ID and then make sure that that credit card is yours. And then before you leave, they look at your receipt. Why? Because they believe in the depravity of man. Costco is biblical in that way. They believe in the depravity of man. Our world thinks that, they, that, that man is good, but functionally, they agree with what the Bible teaches. And that is that mankind is evil. This is why the Bible is accurate in that way. There's no in-between with this topic. And the modernist thinking, one of the things that they try to get people to do and believe is that, hey, you know, mankind isn't that bad. All you need to do is just put a little bit of education, just a little bit of structure in their life, then they will not do the bad things. They're, they're, they're mainly just like a neutral state. They're, 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 they're normal, and then how you teach them will dictate how they live. So you teach them right things, they're not going to go do the bad things. Now, parents, you understand that is not true. You bring them to church, you teach them the Bible, you sing hymns with them, you sing, you sing all these different songs, you memorize verses together, you do everything together, and what happens? Your kid goes and sins against you. Why? You don't need to teach them that. No one teaches, hey, little boy, let me teach you how to sin. It's just it's their default setting. They all love to sin. Why? Because we're all born with a sinful nature. If you don't believe that, Solomon here gives us a test case, an example. Verse 21, 22. Also, do not take seriously all words which are spoken so that you will not hear your servant cursing you. For you also have realized that you likewise have many times cursed other people. Now, I love and I find it fascinating that of all the things that Solomon tries to illustrate how evil we are, he talks about the tongue, the things that you say to other people. That's going to be his way to prove to you that you are a sinner, that you are depraved from the heart. Of all the things, he doesn't talk about your actions, he doesn't talk about what your eyes look at, he doesn't talk about what you hear. He talks about the things that you say. He demonstrates this by telling us, or telling people, just don't take seriously all words which have spoken. Solomon was a king. He was in the courts, and we've seen this one instance where 
where these two prostitutes, and no, uh, you know, one prostitute tries to steal another kid, and then the other prostitute saying, no, that's my kid. And then Solomon, in his wisdom, said, oh, cut the baby in half. And the, the one that the mother truly, the, the child truly belongs to, said, okay, let the child live. And that was just wisdom. He had to figure out all of these court cases. And I'm sure many people have came up to him to, to learn from him. And it says that in Scripture, that many people from different parts of the world came in, and he's probably heard everything under the sun. Oh, you don't even know, Saul. Let me tell you about my coworker. This person can't get his job, right? I mean, they specify the names, or, or there might be teachers like, oh, the principal, they, he's making all, all these policies. Let me tell you about this, this principal and his life, and let me tell you about my family. And he just hears every single one of these cases. And I'm sure most of these cases involve other people, and he hears how they're slandering other people. He's heard other kings and they, how they talk about their own servants and subjects. And Solomon's saying, why are you so prone to self-defense. And he's saying, like, don't worry so much about it. Don't worry about what they have to say. Solomon understood the depravity of man because he heard from what a lot of people are saying. Solomon's saying that humanity is prone to self-defense, especially in the context here. It says servants. It was implied in some sort of leadership position. And And those people in those leadership positions are, they tend to hate being critiqued or correct it because they actually see themselves as above those things, and that those criticisms are below them. And Solomon cautions them not to be overly defensive, because they too have fallen the same sin. Solomon isn't saying that you shouldn't take criticism and correction and just be dismissive about it, or that you just need to not take it seriously, but he's just saying, don't take it personally. Don't take it personally. Why? It's because Solomon understands that every single one of us has fallen in this area. Solomon is saying, don't take it so personally because you know your own shortcomings. And that is that we are the same as the slanderers. Those who slander us, we've slandered them back in different contexts. Ever wonder why people take what other people say so personally? That's what Solomon said before, self-righteousness. We think that we are all above critiques, we're all above criticism, we're all above correction, and we get mad when people expose something about us. Some of you are in positions like that. Whether you're at work and you have people that work under you, or even in the ministry, there are people that you oversee. There are going to be people that are going to grumble against you, and you are going to take it personally. And Solomon is saying, yeah, it's because we're all evil. reason why you take it personally, you're self-righteous. Why people talk bad about you? Because they're self-righteous. Every single one of us are evil. Solomon's revealing to us all that, that through the way that people talk about us, just how depraved we really are. That's why Jesus says, out of the alpha of the heart, the mouth speaks. And every time we talk bad about someone, it shows us something that's going on in our heart, doesn't it? Are we all evil in this way when we talk slanderous about other people, when we gossip about them? We're able to just play back the tapes or listen in on our previous conversations and have other people listen to it. I'm sure all of us would be ashamed because we'd be surprised at how vile our vocabulary really is. And the sad reality is that we delight in tearing down other people. And wisdom tells us that we need to have self-restraint. Wisdom teaches us not to overreact when people say things about us. Instead, wisdom tells us to be charitable and gracious to those who speak against us. Romans chapter 12 is one of my favorite chapters in all of Scripture. 
And it says this, Romans chapter 12, verse 17, Never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Respect what is right in the sight of all men. If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. But if your enemy is hungry, feed him. And if he's thirsty, give him drink. For in doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not overcome do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. And this is why I think Jesus, when he talks about the log in your own eye, to take those things out, to be mindful of the fact that you and I have sin that's just so obvious to everyone except for ourselves. When we realize our own shortcomings and how much God has forgiven us and how gracious he is to us, then why can't we extend, why can't, why can't we extend that grace to other people? How dare we believe we deserve better treatment when we sin against the Lord regularly? We, ex- we are hypocrites before the Lord. And you know what? The sad reality is that we are more like our critics than we would like to admit. We like to tear down people to make us look good. We like to keep ourselves up by defending ourselves to make us not look so bad. Both cases are wrong. Whether you're a slanderer or you defend yourself, both are wrong. And wisdom teaches us and gives us perspective on evil. So what can we do? Well, the great theologian Taylor Swift once said, haters are going to hate, 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 hate. So shake it off. Relax. Chill. Don't, don't worry about it. Wisdom, I'm not, she's not a theologian. I don't know if she's a Christian or not, but whatever. Wisdom teaches us to be generous. Wisdom teaches us to be good to those who seek to do us harm. And remember our Savior. Remember that he was reviled and he did not revile back. And a wise person knows the depths of our own depravity in our hearts, which leads us to self-restraint because we know God's self-restraint towards us for our sins. And perhaps the reason why criticisms are so difficult because those corrections are actually correct. Those perceptions that they have of us, they expose something in us that we aren't willing to realize. And our sinful nature hates it whenever our sinful side is exposed. I know some of you are very sensitive to that. I know some of you struggle when people talk negatively about you and you hear it. So what am I supposed to do with this? Well, there's really two responses. One, you forgive from the heart. Right? First Peter chapter 4, verse 8, Proverbs chapter 10, 12, verse 12, both of them say that love covers a multitude of sins. Love covers a multitude of sins. 1 Corinthians 13, 4 tells us that love, genuine love, does not keep a record of wrongs. So you forgive them from the heart. You forgive them because you understand that's how God has forgiven you. Or, alternatively, if you really are struggling through this and you can't seem to forgive them, then you need to confront them. Matthew chapter 5 warns us, that if you have someone in your life that's sinned against you, you're about to go worship, it tells us, Matthew chapter 5, verse 23, therefore, if you are presenting your offering at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your offering here, there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and present your offering. There's an implication that you would rather, I mean, first and foremost, you want to reconcile with other people before you come to worship. I wonder how many of you are like that, that you would choose your best to reconcile with someone before coming in to church. James chapter 5, verse 20 
tells us that in terms of confronting sin, that sometimes we confront sin because it's to help them. Chapter 5, verse 20 of James, let him know that he who turns the sinner from the error of his way will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. In both cases, whether it's forgiveness of the heart and, or you confront the person directly, it should lead to one thing, and that is forgiveness. It must lead to forgiveness. This is why in Matthew chapter 18, Jesus makes this parable about the, the, the wicked servant who, despite the fact that he was forgiven so much, was not able to forgive the, his fellow servant who owed him so little. And Jesus warns people, Matthew chapter 18, verse 35, my heavenly Father will also do the same to you if each of you does not forgive his brother from your heart. What you're not allowed to do when people criticize you is become bitter. You're not allowed to be bitter because bitterness leads to an unforgiving spirit. And if you are unforgiving, then there is a high chance that you're not a Christian to begin with. Your salvation depends on how gracious you are and how forgiving you are because of how much the Lord has have forgiven you. And I'm pleading with those who have been hurt by the words of other people, even if that wound is this huge, gaping wound, to ask God to give you grace to love those people from a pure heart. If love covers a multitude of sin, and if God can forgive someone like you and I, then why can't we extend that to other people? If you choose to reject what the Bible has to say, then my greatest fear for you is that you are not a Christian to begin with. Be gracious and forgiving because of how gracious and God has been with you. Continue on with Solomon's journey into the depths of madness. Look at verse 23 of Ecclesiastes chapter 7. I tested all this with wisdom, and I said, I will be wise, but it was far from me. What has been is remote and exceedingly mysterious. Who can discover it? As great as Solomon was, he knows that there are certain things about the condition of man that he cannot understand. He doesn't fully realize. He knows that people are evil, but he doesn't know the limit to how evil they are. As gifted as Solomon was, he isn't given exact knowledge of how evil people are. Right In the Jeremiah passage about the, the heart of man is deceitfully wicked. Who can understand? Solomon's like, I'll try. I'll try to do this. I'll try to understand how wicked it is. Like, oh, no, no, I give up. I can't do it. I can't do it. Because there's this limitation to how much he can understand the capacity of human wickedness. A year ago, when COVID was before the vaccine and all of that, a year ago, my family went down to Disneyland. And uh, it was fake Disneyland in the sense that it's Disneyland, but you don't get to go in. It's only downtown Disney. You know, and we told her daughter, hey, we're going to Disneyland. She thought, this is great. She just went, there's like only two stores that was open. All the restaurants were closed. There weren't that many people. It's like the rapture happened. There weren't that many people there. And, but yet, you know, our daughter loved it. She was like, this is great. I can't believe Disneyland's so fun. And we're like, oh, you poor, deprived little child. You did not realize the greatness that's beyond these gates. And we showed her this gate, and she, doesn't, she did not understand. She doesn't understand what's on the other side. And we couldn't enter that gate because there was, you know, COVID and everything was closed. There was only so far we could do, even though we explored for those two long hours in downtown Disney, there was a limit to how, what we could discover in that land. And I think that's how Solomon felt. He lived his whole life turning over every single rock and trying to understand everything there is to know about sin. He enjoyed every sin possible. He indulged in all the madness of the world. And then he hits a, a glass wall. He said, I thought this was it. 
I thought this was all the wickedness that there is, and there's actually more. He can't pass this glass wall known as mystery. This is how he felt. He's frustrated by this. He can only go as far as God lets him go, and he, and he doesn't get that answer that he's looking for because he doesn't understand how depth and how evil people can be. He's reached that limit and is blocked, and he knows that there's more wickedness out there, but he can't comprehend it. He wants to know the answer of how broken we really are on the inside, and yet he cannot find that answer. Brother and sister, don't be surprised at how wicked you are or how wicked you can be in these moments. We have those moments where we're living godly lives and we're going to church, we're serving other people, we're doing our Bible reading, we're praying, and then we have this one crazy thought about the Lord. What if God is evil? And you think, how could I even think that? Well, it's because you're a wicked person. And when you look at the world, you think, why is the world so bad? Don't be surprised. The world is filled with wicked people. Some of us, even in our redeemed state, struggle with sin. And that evil will still reside you until you reach glory. This is what Paul means when in Romans chapter 7, when he has this internal battle within himself. He's struggling with sin. He understands that even though in his redeemed state that he longs for a day where he no longer has to wrestle with the sin that's inside. Verse 25, I directed my mind to know, to investigate, and to seek wisdom and an explanation, and to know the evil of folly and the foolishness of madness. Solomon is reporting to us this journey that he went through, trying to understand human wickedness, and he went all in, both feet in, to observe, and not just even observe, but even personal experience. He went through everything. He wanted to go and see how evil man can be. He wants to understand the question of why, and he cannot resolve it in his mind. Solomon can only use in comparison to understand. He tried to use this, like an illustration for us, and he writes in verse 26, and I discovered more bitter than death a woman whose heart is snares and nets, whose hands are chains. One who is pleasing to God will escape from her, but the sinner will be captured by her. The question, who is this lady that he's talking about? Who is the woman here? And I do believe that this is Solomon thinking back to what he wrote earlier in his life about this, this adulteress, this harlot that's just prowling and waiting to take the unsuspecting and the naive. He's thinking about that woman, the woman that he warns his son about. He's warning them to not fall into this trap, but he himself had fallen in it over and over again. This is that lady he's referring to. He's saying that this lady brings the downfall of many. He isn't speaking of just women in general. He's just speaking of a kind of woman. This woman would, would capture them and destroy them. But he also gives this hopeful line here that says that those who is pleasing to the Lord, will escape her, but the sinner will be captured. And the only hope that he gives to the people that are threatened and tempted by this harlot is that you need to be pleased. You want to be pleasing to the Lord. You find pleasure in God, and you want to live a life that's pleasing to him. That's what's going to keep you from this woman. And so it is with us. The only way that any of us can escape sin, the only way that any of us can run from sin is if we find God to be more delightful and that we want to live a life that is pleasing to him. That desire will override your drive for sin. Desiring God will cause you to desire holiness. And a wise person wants to live so that he can tell his listeners to be pleasing to the Lord. Brothers and sisters, if you're struggling with sin, your struggle is that your love and your heart is being turned towards something else. 
is not being turned towards God, that things are good and pure, but rather your heart is shifting, it's backsliding into sin. And the only way to get out of it is not by doing church ritual things or putting rules upon yourself, but rather you need to turn your heart to pleasing the Lord. You need to love him and want to live a life that is most pleasing to him. Verse 27, behold, I have discovered this, says the preacher, adding one thing to another to find an explanation. Basically, what he's trying to say here is he's trying to find, he's trying to find the answer to this problem or the problem of evil, and it's just, he just can't find it. It just, he, he, it's like, it just lingers inside his mind, and he knows that he doesn't have the answer to it. Verse 28, which I am still seeking, which implies that when he's writing this, he still hasn't figured it out. He, it could be like, he's, he's like, a few days ago, I was just trying to figure this out. And then he concludes, or hasn't concluded, but at the time of this writing, he's still seeking, which I'm still seeking, but have not found. I found one man among a thousand, but I have not found a woman among all these. Now, before you, know, you think this is sexist, just understand what Solomon's going through. He, in his little huge castle, of, well, not little huge, but his big castle and temple, or not a castle, but palace that he's in, he has a thousand women. And he's asking one of them, hey, what is the problem with evil? And then one of them, I would just imagine, like, well, yeah, what is the problem with evil? What's wrong with that? We do whatever we want. What is evil? He's like, okay, that's not helpful. And he goes to another lady and asks, what is the problem of evil? How do we resolve that? And she goes, I don't speak Hebrew. He's like, okay, okay, next lady. And he goes around, goes through all 1,000 of his ladies, asking him, all these women, the same question. And he finds that there is no answer. Except there's one guy, apparently, that can give him an answer. Imagine in his palace, there's just one guy reading his little Hebrew scroll of the Old Testament. He asks him, what is the problem? Why are we in the state? Why is man evil? He just tells him something that the Bible tells him. Look at verse 29. Behold, I found only one. I have only this, that God made men upright, but they have sought out many devices. Which is kind of humorous to me. Like He spent all of this journey and escapades and life of trying to figure out sin and throwing himself into sin, only to find out that the Bible answer is the right answer. That the answer to his question lies in the first three chapters of Genesis. He's just perplexed by sin and doesn't understand why, and then in the end, he finds out that there's one person that can give him this answer. And that answer is something that he should know. The wisest person journeyed and went all this quest to find the problem of evil, and yet the, ob- the answer is just so obvious. The journey of sin brought him back to what the Bible has already said about the human condition. He didn't discover anything new. In a lot of ways, that's why he speaks of the vanity of life. He, he did all of this. He found out, like, oh, I already knew, knew the answer. Why did I even have to spend my whole life wasting my time and wasting my energy, wasting my money when the Bible already tells me what I need to know? And this is just like Adam and Eve, right? They thought in their foolishness that if I just eat from this one fruit, then I will have true knowledge. Right? The serpent tempted them, whatever, and, he, and then... They ate it, ate it. And what was the first thing that they discovered? It wasn't anything profound. It was just the fact that they're naked. Like, oh, what? I'm not wearing clothes. Like, yeah, that's very obvious. You didn't need to eat and disobey God to know that. But then shame came into place because they realized that now they're the ones that decide right and wrong, and they don't know how to make a framework like, like that. Because God was protecting them, and they try to find the deepest answer in life, and the, <laughs> the most profound thing that they've learned first was that they were naked. Solomon learns what he already knows about man, and that man is evil, and humans will always find new ways to sin. Solomon's sinful odyssey led him to include that God 
and his word has been right all along. Sin brings insanity. It makes you think that you're on this grand adventure, that you're going to discover something new and this happiness that, that the Bible doesn't speak of, and then you find out that you're not really running on anything except a treadmill. You're just standing in one place. That's what Solomon is doing. He just wasted his entire life. It makes you think that we should be appreciative of Scripture. We should be thankful to God in the way that, is, that Scripture is read. It perfectly reflects the human condition. It tells us exactly what we are. And I find it fascinating in the last several years with all those Me Too movements and how they're basically saying things that Christians have said before. You know, yeah, you shouldn't treat people this way. You shouldn't look, like, look at them this way. You should have accountability. All the things that Christians were once made fun of for are now things that people are putting in place. Truth will transcend the culture. And that's why we just need to continue trusting the Lord. When the Bible tells us that the scriptures are real and everything that it says will come to pass, we can trust it. Because the most basic fundamental questions are answered in the scripture. Solomon thought that he could find it without God. In the end, it was a vain trip. He just, he just realized, like, I just need to fear the Lord. I need to know God's word. Now, I don't think Solomon understood. He, I don't think he ever reached and understood that, that answer. He only had a, a little inkling understanding of the depravity of man. I also know that Solomon, although he knew that there was going to be a king that will be able to answer that one day because his father was David and God promised David that through his bloodline that there's going to be one king that's going to resolve all of this issue. He knows, Solomon knows, it's not him, it's not me. I tried and I can solve this problem. I don't think Solomon understood that Jesus is going to be that king. He knows the prophecy, but he knows exactly and for, and for sure and the, we are unique in that we actually understand what Solomon's thinking and we get to experience the truth that he, never be able, who he was never able to experience. And that is the Savior is going to redeem them from their sin. That the Savior, there's going to be someone that understands the depravity of man, the wickedness of humanity, truly understands to his fullest capacity, and is still willing to die for our sins. I think that's what Solomon's trying to do here. He's trying to just show us pieces of how of his discoveries of, of the depravity of man and the reality of how evil we are should make us appreciate Jesus Christ more. When we understand just more of Scripture, what holiness means, that means that we will understand how wicked we are. And the more sin we understand and see in our own lives, that should make us appreciate the gospel more. Every evil thought that we've had, every evil slander speech, every time we fail to do what is right, every time we... We don't do what we ought to do. Every time we complain, every time we sin, we must remember that Jesus didn't sin. Jesus had foreknowledge. He understood how to pray we are. He actually got to the bottom of our soul and to see how deep our sin is. And yet, he still came into the world. He was still willing to die for those whose heart is corrupted by sin. And much like we can never fully understand the depths of our sin, we will never fully understand the depths of God's love and grace towards us. Jesus understood these things, and he was still willing to come into the world and die for you and me. There's this hymn, there's a little modern-day hymn that I've grown to love. It's a song that we sing here. It's called His Mercy is More. And sometimes I just think about this, I'm just moved. It reads, what love could remember no wrongs we have done? Omniscient, all-knowing, he counts not their sum. Thrown into sea without bottom or shore, 
our sins, they are many, his mercy is more. What patience will wait as we constantly roam, but Father so tender is calling us home. He welcomes the wicked, the vilest, the poor. Our sins, they are many, but his mercy is more. What, kind, what riches of his kindness he lavished on us. His blood was the payment, his life was the cost. Was, we stood near a debt we could never afford. Our sins, they are many. His mercy is more. Praise the Lord. His mercy is more. Stronger than darkness, new every morn. Our sins, they are many. And his mercy is more. Father God, we'll never fully understand both the extremes and how wicked we are and how much you loved us. I do hope that we can I just hope that we can just grasp a little bit more of how wicked we are so that we can be repulsed by sin, so that we can hate it. But not just that, but that we can also love you more because of how gracious you are. Or we're undeserving of your kindness, but yet you still demonstrate to us. Or may that be a truth that makes us love others, to show them grace, the grace that you've shown us, and to live in such a way that is different, live in such a way that is aligned to who your son is. Or we do confess in things that we fail on a regular basis, but your mercy is more each and every single day. And may we, with that knowledge, strive to be pleasing to you, work in our hearts, work in our minds, and work in our lives so we can be holy people before you. We thank you in your son's precious name. Amen.